Today's episode is sponsored by Discovered Magazine. Discovered is an international print counterculture magazine encompassing the best of music, art, skateboarding, and anything with a punk ethos. Listeners get 10% off a yearly subscription using the code FIRSTEVER when they visit store.dscvrd.co. Discover just released not one but three covers for readers to choose from, summing up the best artists to break through this year. On the covers, One Step Closer, See You Space Cowboy, and Chubby and the Gang. One more time, that's store.dscvrd.co. Welcome to the first ever podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Bohm. If this happens to be your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. This is the last episode of the year. This is coming out on the 29th, and I thought it'd be awesome to get a writer slash music critic to come on and sort of talk about the year in music and a ton of other stuff. So I got none other than Ian Cohen. Ian has been writing for Pitchfork since 2007. He's written for Rolling Stone, LA Weekly, ESPN, GQ. He's, he's all over the place, but I think he's most known for covering a lot of bands um, on Pitchfork that, you know, maybe wouldn't have been covered in the past. He's reviewed albums for Turnstile, See You Next Tuesday, Knocked Loose. This is just in the last year. Fiddlehead. You get the idea. Ian also helped out writing the story, basically, and conducting all the interviews that are a part of the Art of Touche Amore book, which will be shipping to customers in January. It's like a 400-page art book that uh, Nick Steinhardt put together that has everything from all the art from the deluxe uh, versions of the records that we've made, plus every T-shirt, tour poster, seven inch etc it's uh it's very in-depth um but yeah uh this was an awesome conversation you get to really know ian as a person his life as a nutritionist and so on also if you're interested in a bonus episode you can head on over to patreon.com slash the first ever patreon and hear a bonus episode where he answers questions submitted by subscribers if that interests you Head on over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. Subscribe for as little as $3 a month and you'll get bonus episodes of the uh, of you know these interviews. But also on top of that, you'll also get an extra two radio hours delivered to you every Sunday. You also get the normal radio hours delivered a day early. So much cool stuff happening over there. Um, yeah, there's a $3 tier, $7 tier, $10 tier. Check it out. We have a lot of fun over there. All right, I think that's it. Uh, Hope you enjoy this conversation with Ian Cohen and have a happy new year. Thank you for being here with me this year. You're the best. I love you. Take care. Here you go. Here's my conversation with Ian Cohen. Ian, thank you so much for hanging out. How are you? Uh, I'm doing all right. I mean, like I I was about to like make a joke that, you know, maybe... I was on this podcast today because I don't know maybe Dan Ozzy got too popular and I had to bow out at the last minute. But I did, I did see that you have done an episode with Dan, so uh, you know I I I just feel like super honored 
to uh, be a part of it. Like maybe it was like the maybe it was like the worst thing to like look at the people who have been on this in the past and see like you know the guys behind like Sunbather and Full Collapse and Near My God and you know the books sell out. Um, <laughs> such luminaries have been on the show, and now there's just like little old me. Oh. Um, but no, no, this is, I'm, I'm super stoked about this. Yeah, of course. Uh, I was, you know, there's, I have like a, a super long list of people that I'm like, at some point I'm going to bug that person. <laughs> at some point I'm going to bug yeah. that person. <laughs> um, and I appreciate you making yourself available on such, such short notice. So thanks. Yeah. Uh, I think we just talked yesterday about this. So thank you. Yeah, it's, it's cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm making the most out of like my time off from my real job by like getting deeper into my other job. So, you know, sure. we're, we're all, we're always hustling. It's that Jewish grind set to be uh, working on new year on uh, Christmas Eve. I'm yeah. That's joking. the, fu- <laughs> well, that's the, fu- I mean, yeah, if we're talking obviously right now it's Christmas Eve yeah. and uh, I'm talking to you. And then after this, I'm going over to Nick Steinhardt's house to, uh, cause he's going to help me with another project. Cause he's like, I got, I don't got anything to do today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, shout, shout, shout to us, you know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's a, it's a hack for, uh, that's like a, a life, <laughs> a life hack right there. You, you, if you have an awesome Jewish friend, you, you should hit him up on Christmas Eve if you need a favor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah always in the past i'd be like hey is anyone available to like work at the house on uh on christmas eve and they'd just be looking in my direction like you know that <laughs> like this isn't not why we hired you but it's not not so <laughs> and i've i've i you know the good news is i no longer work in residential uh care so i no longer ha- there's no longer a house to be at on christmas so otherwise it would just be like decorate it would be like you know decorating uh gingerbread houses and um watching i don't know muppet christmas carol so what what's what was that job wait what were you doing oh i there? worked well i worked I, I still i still work as a dietitian in eating disorders but like in the past i had worked at a residential facility which means that the patients live there um and so there's you know no pe- like christmas people got to work on that day Sure. Um, so, you know, at times I pitched in on there, but now I work in a PHP slash IOP, like an outpatient thing. So our facilities are closed, uh, on Christmas. So everyone gets to go home. So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that is the real life uh, in real life job that I alluded to, uh, just, right. ju- ju- just for the first ever podcast, people who like think that, you know, being a, uh, you know, a music writer necessarily means you're like clocking six figures and, you know, just can dictate your own hours and, you know, go off to Turks and Caicos during the uh, holidays. <laughs> uh, well, it's, I knew that you uh, were a dietitian because yeah. I think when we first met, um, you were, I met you at a show at the Roxy, I believe. Oh, and yeah. Then, I forget who we were seeing. Was it maybe that Me Without You Foxing it show? It probably was. Yeah, yeah. That sounds about right. And then... Um, but around that time, I think you were then going to move to Kentucky. Yeah. Yes, and was I did. That, was that for school for dietitian or was that it, for it, a job? It was, it was, I guess for lack of a better term, like a residency, I spent, uh, about a year living in Lexington, Kentucky. Um, and at that venue, I think I saw y'all and I saw, um, I think Joyce Matter played there as well. It was like a it was Zanzibar, I think it was in Louisville. Um, and that it was like the hottest it was like 130 degrees in that venue, just so poorly ventilated. And then, then I think I took two of my, like two of my bosses, like my preceptors to see when you guys open for Thursday in Cincinnati. Oh, uh, right. yeah. Yeah. And that, and 
a funny story with that. It's like I'm like walking back to my car and I see Jeff and I'm like, hey, Jeff, what's up? And like all of a sudden, uh, you know, me and like two people who are like technically my superiors at work are like talking with Jeff Rickley on their tour bus. So, uh, you know, not an unintentionally baller ass move. But yeah, I, I moved to Kentucky because you got to do an internship to, you know, work as a registered dietitian. And I decided, um, you know, I was living in Glendale uh, in 2016. And I decided that, uh, cost wise, it was cheaper for me to like move to Kentucky than to move closer to UC the, to the VA and like Westwood. So yeah, I, yeah, I just it, moving to Kentucky, like West side of LA, it, it somehow didn't seem possibly comparable. So, right. uh, you know, I did that for about a year, $500 a month in rent. Um, plenty of central air and heating and um knew not a soul and came back uh to san came back to southern california san diego was the first place that uh, offered me a job and so packed up my shit and now i'm still back in so- southern california you know my whole thought was like oh you know la is only two hours away i can go up there every every other weekend but you know nowadays it's like san diego is just so much easier i, I oh, kind of sure j- yeah, I just kind of joke that it's in a lot of ways San Diego is like LA circa 2013. It's a <laughs> like great that call. that era is just starting to net, like you go up to North County and everyone's got like the hats and like the mason jars and you know it's it, it's sort of like the hardcore to Americana pipeline had just set up so you got all the guys with like sleeve tats who are you know discovering Johnny Cash now it's it's <laughs> And that and that's San Diego in 2021. It's a it's, I completely I can see that. What uh, I just out of curiosity, what uh, made you want to get into being a dietitian? Like, what was the drive? So, um, it, but when I was like 22 and did not have a fucking clue of what I wanted to do with my life, that was something I had considered doing. Um, you know, I just like whoa, what, what, like, like, like so many other 22 year olds, you know, get out of college with a useless degree and think to yourself well shit i don't i need to do something man like grad school sure and i ended up choosing law school because uh that was just the path of least resistance at the time i know how silly that sounds now but um yeah i decided you know what let's do that and um you know after i worked in hollywood for lack of a better term for i don't know the better part of five or six years like that old thing like completely collapsed and i found myself in 2011 thinking like okay well uh i don't want to go back in that industry why don't i re like i knew someone who was a dietitian and she's like yeah here's what you need to do and um it's like okay that sounds interesting to me uh and so it took like two years of going to like four different uh community colleges to get the prerequisites uh going to cal state northridge to do a two-year program then going to Kentucky to do the internship, which allowed me to sit for the RD exam. And, you know, what? what I, I work primary, I work exclusively, actually, in eating disorders. And um, that, to me, is like the only, only realm of dietetics that I could possibly work in. Like, I remember uh, me, like, getting hired to be, like, just more like a diet tech at, like, this uh, treatment facility. And you're just seeing the like it, it's it's almost like therapy. It's like you kind of get to be a quasi therapist, and it's quasi like recovery work as well. And just seeing these people 
like kind of go through their struggles and try to, you know, create a better life for themselves outside of their addiction and disorders. It just, you know, it just, it just seemed like this is where I could be of use, not being someone who's like trying to like get people to do weight loss or like traveling around to like hospitals and telling some, you know, 60 year old guy, like, Hey man, here's how you can lower your sodium or some shit like that. So, right. There's um, more, you feel like there's more reward, more reward, more connection, um, more just, um, you know, person to person recovery. I mean, it's really remarkable, uh, what people deal with, uh, you know, people who deal with eating disorders and how so little help there is for people and how it's so misunderstood by society as a whole. So, I figured that was, you know, that that was what I find to be most enjoyable, most rewarding, and um, yeah, there, there, it, it, it's, it. I'm very, very lucky in that, like, I have a career where, you know, I go into work and feel like, you know, what today, like, I'm, I'm, I hopefully, you know, I can help someone today, and more to the point, it's, uh, it's something that is completely distinct from the writing. Like, there is no, like nobody at, like i don't even think of people at, at work like i mean some of them do know i write but like they're just like oh cool like you write for like spin or pitchfork or, oh that's is that a blog or something like <laughs> right the, even if they like even the people who knew yeah who know what i do like they just don't know what to do with that information it's like okay <laughs> that's cool so i feel like that's one of my favorite joys uh, in life like i uh I have a relationship with this, the entire staff at the Starbucks down the street from me, <laughs> and they have literally no, no idea. You have never been I'm, recognized at uh, Starbucks. Uh, I one time got recognized by by a uh, a patron behind me, and uh, I saw the staff be very confused by it. And I just tried <laughs> to diffuse the situation as quick as yeah. possible because I'm just like, it's, you know, not I'm not gonna be weird about it, but at the same time, it's like. I'm excited to walk into an establishment and just ask these the employees about their day and just have yeah. like bullshit daily conversation and not have to get into like, you know, when are you leaving for tour type? Yeah. <laughs> um, but actually just out of here, cause I live in Glendale. You're yeah. in Glendale. What, I was uh, in Glendale. What, what part of town were you in? Uh, I was right across from the Ralph's um, on, I guess Colorado? it would have been Colorado and campus, um, which I think it was like, I think that's like where the guy from Bauhaus got like hit by a car or like got arrested or something like that. It's like one of the most dangerous pedestrian streets in the entire city, I think. And I think it was like that, that part of Glendale, like where I lived was right where they had that club. There was like some noise club there for a minute. I I think I saw Pharmacon play there in 2013 and maybe complex. That was it. Yes. Yeah, and then that yeah. shut down like super quick. There was a I I want I got a like a Leonard Cohen bootleg record that said it was at the complex, and I was like, wait, this can't this, <laughs> this can't be the same thing. This cannot no, be the same thing. Yeah, no. this, I mean, it, was, it definitely wasn't. But when I first saw it, I was like, wait a minute, no, no. <laughs> this thing hasn't been around that long. <laughs> like, no, no, it, it, there was like a brief like a period of several months where like Glendale was like the uh central node for noise music in la county um but i think it was just i don't know if it was noise location music system of a down yeah yeah right yeah oh yeah i had a lot like i had a lot of armenian neighbors um it's a huge armenian population in glendale and like system of a down was just 
like super fucking important for many many reasons what about you what part of glenn like is it more towards like the americana or i'm uh i'm up by the college i'm up by gcc yeah okay cool and now and now funny enough dan ozzy is is uh my neighbor he lives like a couple (laughs) blocks away from there so many people have moved here and also uh, we just recently realized by walking our dog like how many like actors and comedians and famous people are like now in glendale in our neighborhood like behind like i feel like glendale's become the oh it's quiet and you can like get space i i we love living yeah here, i like, loved it too like i'm like when i moved there i'm like well you know what like fuck that i don't need to live in silver lake anymore i just get on the two i'm at the echo i'm not and, and see i'm not going to the echo like three times a night you oh, know sure. it was it was just a nice uh, it was just a way to like you know pay less rent and right no i yeah. feel it i feel it are you do you enjoy san diego though you, yeah you, you i like do it? now <laughs> i mean it's it's it, I don't know. I, I've heard various things about how bands enjoy being here because I hear sometimes it's like, yeah, if you don't play like '90s rock, then like you know you're not gonna like you're you're not gonna get a huge turnout. Um, but you know, when I first got here, like I still had this impression that was all going to be like nothing but like you know San Diego State bros and like guys in the Navy beating the shit out of each other in Pacific Beach and flat brims and board shorts and you know there is some element of that don't get me there wrong is, but, yeah. <laughs> um but yeah i enjoy san diego because like i mean i have a full-time job now i'm married i'm a homeowner it's like the all the things that i might miss about la or i did miss about la or, you know and even before the pandemic it's like yeah i don't think i'd be enjoying that stuff now you know like For i'd be sure. stuck in, in traffic for 45 minutes and i wouldn't be able to get reservations to that restaurant i wanted to go to and i'd go to the show but like a lot everyone there is like industry so it's still not going to be as live as like you know a show in orange county even so um right. which i mean and you're if, also if, just a, you're a couple hours away so if you yeah need, i'm if a couple want, hours if you away dip your toe you can dip your toe back yeah. and and you can you can have it back so wh- where are you actually are you from the East Philadelphia, Coast. yeah, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a suburban Philadelphian. I, for whatever reason, that tends to be a huge hotbed for uh, future music writers. I don't know what it is about that place, but um, now I grew up there um, prior to uh, Philadelphia becoming like a cool city. Um, when, by the time I had graduated high school, like I would say, the biggest bands from Philadelphia were, uh, in recent memories, G Love and Special Sauce and the Bloodhound Gang, like. I remember like when we would when when we would uh take the bus to middle school, there would be this club called Brownies, this like shitty little nightclub. Um and it would always say like Bloodhound Gang playing and like the Lone, you know, and all like Marah. That was the other band that was like really popping towards the end. And I, we've talked me and Steve have talked like Stephen Hyden loves that fucking band. And we've <laughs> talked about like how if they came out in like 2014 they would have been total fest core like they would have had maybe like a menzingers type career um interesting yeah call. yeah it's uh but yeah philadelphia originally then uh you know most of my most of the formative years of my college age and 20s in the deep south in the south like virginia georgia then moved out to la and lived there from 2006 to 2016 and what uh what what do you think it is that made you sort of like that wanderlust sort of thing where <laughs> you're just moving around so much like what, yeah what, what what do you think inspired that just wanting God. wanting new... to get the fuck out like i mean yeah. i'm 
like when I, when I was thinking about like where I was going to go for like law school, like back in 2003, I mean, this was at the peak of like my obsession with like Southern authors, like William Styron and like Faulkner and so forth. I mean, I put in applications to places like Ole Miss, um, Oxford fucking rules, by the way, but like, you know, I, I, I like Notre Dame, I just like another place, like, I, which is in Indiana, but it's also like a Catholic university. I just had, I, maybe there was just like a real contrarian streak in me of like thinking that, uh, you know, like most people in high school, I, I was, you know, I, I felt like, oh man, fuck this place. I'm going to get out of here and I'm going to do shit completely different. This stifling uh, East Coast Jewish upbringing, which, you know, was nothing but supportive and communal. But <laughs> um, yeah, it, 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 I don't know. It's just like, especially in like the earlier times, I just kind of followed where I think things would have just taken me. Um, you know, I knew I needed to get out of Pennsylvania. Like I had the opportunity to go to Penn State. And I, of course, if I did, I would have probably, you know, gone there, hung out with my brother's friends and done all that. But I figured I had to like plot out another way for myself. And it, it, it's a little too complicated. It, it's, it's a very complicated um, mixture of, I don't know, contrarian thinking and uh, undiagnosed alcoholism and depression. But um, I would say that I had this kind of dream of being like some weirdo author living in like the boonies of South Carolina. Like that was the end game and that was the end path yeah that's yeah what, that, that's that was it heading. like i was gonna be like i don't know like i'm trying to think of like like you know like charles portis or like one of the one of those like hard scrabble authors but it, it just i don't know th- like i think my jewish upbringing at the end of the day won out and it's like dude get your ass to fucking law school like you'll just in three years you'll figure it out and 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 that still didn't happen. Like I decided right. at the end of that, like, hey, I'm gonna go to California and start working in Hollywood, like in talent management and all that. And that's an entirely different, like, like that 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 was such a strange, uh, that was such a strange adventure. Because uh, I remember the first place I had worked at, um, and I, I, this will be funny probably to people in who are listening to this podcast because nowadays. APA represents like a lot of bands in like the punk and uh, hardcore and emo realm. Right. Uh, but when, when I first started there, uh, they had, that was like the first place I'd worked in Hollywood and they had, I worked in the comedy uh, department and they like the, the music department at that time had, they had one guy who repped fallout boy and panic. Uh, but otherwise they had like the other bands on the warp tour, like the hush sound and, uh, Oh, wow. Uh, plain white tees. They were on the end, but also like smooth jazz, like Al Jarreau and like Peebo Bryson. And that like really disavowed my, uh, my desire to ever work in any sort of like music booking, uh, talent sort of thing. Cause like, so were you, were you doing, you were like a booking agent for a second? I was, I was working in like entourage was huge at the time. <laughs> yeah. And like, I, I, I I'm like a, I'm ashamed to admit how much that may have influenced my career choices in 2006, but I worked in, yeah, I worked in the mail, like worked my way up from the mailroom, like Ari gold. And, um, I came up in the comedy department, but eventually like my, the, what I ended up doing was working in, um, talent management. Like we worked in a startup, uh, called new wave dynamics, um, which was a comedy record label. Like my job was to go out to like the fucking chuckle hut in North Hollywood and just sign every comedian under the sun. And, and, you know, it, it was awful. Like I, I, it was 
just so depressing. Um, I had to lie. I lied constantly. Um, I, it, it was just such a miserable, but in some ways exciting experience. And of course, nowadays that, that company, that label is probably rep probably released like 75% of like the Grammy nominees for best comedy album. Uh, it was going to be successful because the person at the helm was just super driven, like monomaniacal genius. But like the part they had me doing, which was the kind of sign every act on the face of the earth, like long tail stuff, like that was just a joke. Uh, and I right. just had to shake a lot of hands, see, I, I don't know if you go to comedy shows, but like there's the worst, the worst gig you've ever played, like the, like the worst gig you've ever seen nothing compares to like the like i would say the average comedy act like because when you're bombing on stage in comedy uh it's like there's there's nowhere to hide yeah yeah Yeah. there's nowhere to hide you can't like drown out the vocals you can't like just jam out you um and you know the sad part is there wasn't a lot of like it's a very stratified or it was back then like very stratified so that you would have you know, the guys who would get the Comedy Central specials, but and like the guys who would ha- have movie deals. But like then there was like people who were like touring, like the real like touring comedians and the people who like just had no shot whatsoever. So there was like I would say like there isn't there wasn't any like th- mind you, this was 2009. Uh, no grizzly bear. There was no animal collective of comedy for real. Like there was no like middle ground. Right. Uh, but now that's, I guess, been kind of altered because stand up is no longer like the primary, um, the primary focus of a comedy career. No, it's true. That's absolutely yeah. true. Um, so when I, you know, with coming up questions, because this is like a show about all about first experiences and stuff like, okay, because you're such a music writer, there's some parallels there with, uh, with like questions I would ask musicians. So like, oh. out of curiosity, when you were, <laughs> when you were young, what was the first music that you connected with that you you know maybe felt like was yours oh man um so the first tape i ever got was the first cassette i had i had ever been bought was george michael's faith which i was i had to have been like eight or nine years old like when you look back on that out like what the fuck is my what are my parents doing buying me that album like it is so there's a lot of like uh, adult shit that i would never uh possibly uh, comprehend but maybe that's why i was able to get into it but um, I would say that like, you know, like I think Pearl Jam was like the first band that, um, I felt like it, it's so crazy to think that like back in 1991, like owning a Pearl Jam cassette would make you somewhat of an outcast, but you know, cause like, I mean that out, what 10 sold like what, like 15 million copies oh, yeah. It's and for sure. Yeah. And you know, being in what must have been fifth or sixth grade. I I remember this as clear as day. Like I had brought this tape to summer camp um, and some guy like didn't know where they were. It's like, who's that Pearl Jam and the Bo- MC Pearl Jam and the boys. I'm like, that was, that was like a crushing insult you could give. But, um, but the first <laughs> band that like, I think I super got into like, as far as like, you know, it wasn't Nirvana. It wasn't Pearl Jam. Uh, Allison Chains was like dirt. That was like for a while, like my favorite album of all time. And 
I had no idea what heroin was. <laughs> so not. Yeah. Yeah. No, like, I mean, you know, it was like 1992. It's like, Oh man, like this sounds like dark and like, and like no, like I, until the, until the rooster video came out, I had no idea like what the Vietnam war was. Um, so, but the, the first band that like, I guess formative identity, like formative is my identity is smashing pumpkins. I mean, I don't know what it was about that at the time that really st- struck a chord with me, but um, you know, in retrospect, I think there was an element of smashing pumpkins music, no matter how popular they got, there was always this try hard component to them, which I think um, resonated with me as like a miss, you know, a so, so-called misunderstood 13 year old, right. um, you know, cause like there was just something different about their presentation uh, compared to, you know, Nirvana or like Pearl Jam or even Soundgarden for that matter. Um, and, you know, like I didn't know about like the, you know, the conflicts Billy Corgan had with like, you know, the indie rock peer his indie rock peers or whatever. But I mean, and I think that's like kind of a critique that many people have leveled at Billy Corgan is that he functions on like the uh, emotional level of a 13 year old, like no matter right. how old he gets. Yeah. Um, but, you know, them and like, you know, they were just a band that like I would do, buy anything that they put out. But uh, I, this is not revelatory, but like, OK, computer was the thing that changed that that changed everything for me. Like that was uh, I bought it while on a teen tour in Israel uh, in 1997 and um, bought they came out uh, and just had the, like, I was also very into the doors at the time I was going through a heavy doors phase. So I was like, <laughs> I was very much uh, in a position to think everything I had listened to was like a profound spiritual experience. So like I was in the desert that summer listening to like the doors and Radiohead and, <laughs> getting deep into wu-tang and wow i i just really wish i could access that um credulousness i think maybe is the right word but um yeah after after that point that like radiohead was i think the um the thing that had kind of uh pushed me down the slippery slope of uh you know finding out like what's being said in music magazines and you know seeking out music online seeking out opinions of music online because you know this was 1997 98 uh aol chat was pretty much the extent of uh social media at the time and the internet was the internet at that time existed for uh espn and guitar tablature and in some ways like its use has not really evolved (laughs) you know like um like I'll, i'll like sometimes like try to remember how to play like Led Zeppelin's Achilles last stand or something like that. And like, this is the same tab I remember from printing out like my brother's dot matrix printer at his college at Penn state. Like, right. And just... it's probably incorrect. Yeah. Um, it's totally incorrect. Yeah. It's, you know, you went, you went down such a, such a path there of all these different <laughs> bands and things like that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of interesting to follow that trajectory that you had. Um, 
you know what song I just thought about and I put on like a radio show that I do is from Alice in Chains. Did you have the Last Action Hero soundtrack? Of course because I had the last. What the hell have I? Yeah, that man. That song is so good. That that, that, that is... soundtrack fucking rips, man. That's got the, it's got, got anthrax. Po- yeah, Poison <laughs> My Eyes. That's a, that's a banger. Big Gun by ACDC. Oh yeah, uh, Big Gun is a fucking ripper. Yeah, yeah. That, 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 uh, I think, who someone covered looking down on the no i'm thinking of something but yeah that like alice and chains had like some real good like i think there's maybe two is there two songs from them on it i maybe I might yeah be, i mm, now i need to check that yeah, one michael Kamen was definitely involved uh the guy who did snm with metallica oh yeah uh, yeah yeah oh, yeah oh. so that that brought me back i was yeah i did like an all 90s uh, <laughs> radio show and i was like i was like i should probably do an alice and chain song i always like throughout my life i always leaned into jar of flies just because it's yeah. like i think of all the records i think that one maybe is aged the best too yeah i think so but uh, uh but yeah that last action hero soundtrack song popped in my head i was like oh i should revisit that and i was like fuck this shit yeah. is good yeah i i i had listened i i was i remember that because like there was like a seven minute anthrax song in the john bush era or whatever like and it's like yeah this is this is so sick and that like there was, I think it was Rob Harville at the Rigger did a, uh, a a recent show about like what he called the alternative junk drawer '90s soundtracks, like that. No alternative. The Crow, which of course was like huge. <laughs> yeah, soundtracks in the '90s definitely like opened my eyes to a lot of things. Like I, I mean, I had the Crow soundtrack, and I didn't oh, yeah. learn until later that the Nine Inch Nails song was a was Joy a cover. cover. Yeah, no idea. No idea. I was like, wow, I was you know certified poser but of course <laughs> you know yeah uh I, I, the funniest part about sound, like the last real run of soundtracks too in the late 90s it was like the new metal to bad horror movie pipeline yeah. <laughs> like spawn or there's one that is like a deep cut d uh d snyder from twisted sister made a movie called strange land and the Strangeland soundtrack is just like the the who's who of, of that era. It's got you know Cole Chamber and all and oh, all yeah. things on it. But uh, but yeah, I mean Queen of the Damned, like the major oh, yeah. soundtracks, like all of that stuff. It was it was a hotbed, hotbed for new metal. Yeah, seriously. Uh, uh, yeah, I just, I mean, I'm sure there's like a whole lot of industry rationale as to like why it makes no sense to do something like that. But it was like. I just remember how exciting it was like that. Oh my God, a new Alice in Chains song. Like, I don't care if there's a movie involved. Like, the, but now it's like if Alice in Chains had a song, like they could just like put out a single or totally. whatever. The, I think my, the, my least favorite thing that hasn't, you would think would have gone away that we have to blame Donnie Darko for with movie soundtrack stuff is like every yeah. trailer you see is the, yeah. is the dark rendition dark. of another song and i'm fucking like you would think that would have been done by now but every time you see a new trailer you're like oh my god will you stop with this shit it's crazy <laughs> um so when um when did you have the like what you know with again first experiences like what was do you remember the first like i guess record review that you wrote and was it oh, like yeah. for your was it for yourself were you like a uh, MySpace reviewer what was your nah, school newspaper <laughs> i think uh perfect yeah i guess it would have been high school it was the uh self-titled 311 album it i gave it a very positive review 
that and maybe also the presidents of the United States of America. I might have reviewed that one. I I think I might have been like a little more ambivalent about that. I didn't think maybe anything really matched uh, a lump or what have you. You know, it's maybe I thought it was front loaded at the time. Um, Yeah, I don't think I don't think that CD ended up making it to. I'm pretty sure I sold that album back and forth to Disco Round a couple times. So. Uh, yeah, maybe, uh, Dune Buggy or, uh, uh, Mach 5 was on the second album. Okay. Uh, There was, yeah, Dune Buggy, Peaches. Oh uh, yeah, Dune Buggy was the first one. Dune Buggy, Peaches, um, there was a third song. I know there was a third song. Yeah, but I definitely had that CD. (laughs) I just, I just interviewed Ricky from, uh, from Me Without You a couple weeks ago and we were talking (laughs) about, um, that time in the 90s where, Every, when you were young enough everything kind of just felt like it was grunge or like yeah. even though it wasn't you know totally. like, like it, it, and we were laughing about the amount of times where it was like hey just throw some flannel on and grow your hair out and we could probably make this work and that's why <laughs> that's why we got shoved like collective soul and crash test dummies on oh us, yeah you know it's what an amazing time because like i think i i, I try to and i know the so much about the music industry has changed, but I'm like, I always try to think of like, okay, there is a crash test dummies happening this minute. There is a collective soul happening this minute. Who is it? And it's not going to sound necessarily a collective soul, but like, who is it? Like, if you think about like the dominant form of like pop or rock music right now, like who are the people that are at the B or C list? And like, should I start seeking this stuff out? You know, maybe it, I, I would like, I think that stuff does exist maybe do uh, on like K rock or whatever. Like, you know, I, I, th- I <laughs> at my old job, like I had to drive like the uh, house van every now and again, and like there was no aux cord. So I'd have to listen to the radio. Um, and sometimes you would hear like San Diego's rock stations. Like, Oh, this is what theory of a dead man sounds like. <laughs> you know, I, I always maybe think- that's, maybe that's the collective soul of these days. You know, I've, I've never really had this conversation with anyone and I'd be curious to hear your take on it where there was that, you know, when the full swing of the stomp clap, uh, you know, yeah. like faux indie stuff was all over the radio. I remember like you would hear those songs and you'd be like, what fucking band is this? And then you'd read the title. You're like, what? Is-? And uh, do you feel like it was maybe like major label pushback because indie like, like, the big radio stations weren't going to be playing the Decemberists or they weren't going to be playing Bell and Sebastian. They weren't going to be playing the national. So they were like, we have to come up with our own versions of these. I guess so. That's, that's what I, you know, but here, here's the thing. It's like, I I know exactly what you're talking about. And I oftentimes wonder if like that stomp clap, Hey ho stuff like Lumineers, what you're talking about. Like, yeah, I, I wonder if it's like, more or like people like are exaggerating the degree of like it was how popular it was but what i've noticed is that over the years it's like things have changed from like that sort of sound to more of an imagine dragon sort of thing like it's always the it's like oh this is cold war kids again or this is like foster the people like they've evolved with the time so like it's not always this like um wave of new bands but just like these you know, major like these major label lifers who have just like kind of adapted at times, which I don't know. That's kind of impressive. Like I hear of like 
as sometimes at the gym or the supermarket, I'll hear a song. It's like, oh, I kind of dig this. Like, who is this? I'll Google. It's like, oh, this is what of monsters and men sound like. Okay. Like, and I, I, I just miss that. Um, that feeling of being like 15 years old, being this like captive audience and like, oh, I'll buy it. Like, I don't know where I got $17 to buy this, like, uh, buy this collective soul CD, but you know, I'm going to do it. Like, um, but nowadays, you know, kids don't kids don't know what it's like to, you know, go to disco around and like like real like spend eight dollars on a CD and think that's like a steal or like or when when I see like sixteen or seventeen year old kids at like Pitchfork Festival, I'm like, no, dude, like this is too early for you to get into cool music or like, yeah, you 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 you, you got to have a few more years out there in the wilderness, dude. Like you're. And please enjoy yourself. Like get into some really terrible rock bands. Right. Yeah. No, exactly. That's, uh, that's, I mean, I feel like that's what that, is it hundred gex or thousand, whatever that hundred gex. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's for, that's for, that should be for kids to realize that's terrible when they get older. Um, (laughs) that's, that's my, yeah. I couldn't believe when I heard that band. Um, fuck it. Uh, so when, when, um, when did you start actually like did did you get get like a staff writing job at uh, any publications or was it always freelance or so um I, I i my my path like when people ask me it's like you know people ask me in earnest and i'm not like saying this like gas myself up but people ask like you know how do you how did you get to where you are i'm like well i would recommend like not going the same path that i i mean everyone has their own path but for me it was like I wrote in college, the college newspaper. And, um, but after that, like, and this is like the era I look back on most fondly, like 2003 to 2005 live journal blog spot. I just like, this was at the time where I was like heavily reading Chuck Klosterman, heavily reading Bill Simmons, which I know that's like telling on yourself in 2021 where they're not you know those their reputations aren't exactly pristine but like as far as like them kind of influencing me to believe that hey i could write about whatever the fuck i want like i only cared about music and sports so like it's like oh why don't i write about both so i would just start a live journal and write five thousand word posts for free about like I don't know, college football or like I was really into lead pockets at the time. I wrote about those and music just completely unselfconscious. And um, that's where I developed kind of a community of like like-minded people, which um, – and some of these guys are still around. Like Tom Bryan, like at Stereo Gum, I know he big Touche fan. Like he was one of the people I got to know at that time. Like Sean Fennessy, who's now like at The Ringer, who's – you know very big yeah yeah killing it there um you know jeff weiss passion of the weiss like these are all people it's like i look back on that period like the way like some rap like rappers look back on 89 is like the golden era or like 2011 for the new wave of post-hardcore right um it but it was like from that point like i i would find like i wrote for like a bunch of like defunct now defunct like websites like stylus magazine and it took about like four years of writing on my own, like freelance to uh, get uh, to get my first like, ru- I think the f- the first thing I ever got paid to write was AOL fan house. Um, it, it, this is getting to real sports. Remember some guys territory, but um, yeah. 
yeah, that was like the first paid writing gig I had. And like, I would just write about Virginia football and then the ACC. But um, the first time I ever got paid to write about music was, I believe, 2007 at Pitchfork. Um, once Stylus Magazine folded, a lot of us got picked up by them. They're like, hey, you want to come write for us? Like, yeah, you're fucking right, I do. And, you know, some of those guys are still around. Like, you know, Jason Green was one of those people. Like, and Mike Powell, like... Um, a lot of talent there. And um, the first review I think I ever did for them was this. Okay, you're an LA guy. So maybe you remember the deadly syndrome. Like I this don't. is like a 2006, 2007 post arcade fire kind of like that, like cla- like kind of post blog rock sort of band. Like okay. that is the best way to describe them. But sure. they were kind of the next big thing. I-, I wrote that and it's like at that time, you know, the, the, and I don't know, one, obviously no one can do this anymore because of like uh, the way, you know, music writing has changed and so forth. But back then it's like, I would just write anything like, especially like, oh, you have this like really fucking terrible, like Brit rock album you want to review. I'll do that one. Um, and yeah, it was fun a, because, you know, you don't get immediate feedback, like the worst bit of like blowback you get maybe is like some drunk college kid emailing you at like 3 30 in the morning talking about like how i'm totally wrong about kings of leon and i live in my parents basement so and so right so um but yeah i mean like and and that that whole time i was working still at um you know working like a a, a hollywood job um like that was just the thing i would do for fun the, the, it paid next to nothing it was just like you know electric bill money Sure. Um, and you know, the whole time I, I was, I was having a blast doing it. It was, I, I oftentimes like to joke that, um, you know, the site back at that time was for better or worse. It was like a fantasy baseball league that liked to review albums. <laughs> you know, it was very tight knit all, it was like pretty much all dudes, um, just doing some, remember some guys type shit on a message board. But, um, you know, the first time it ever became like a job like from you know as far back as i can remember like as long as i've been writing there's always been this part of me that wondered um you know what would it be like if i were able to just go all in on this um you know like i i I oftentimes think about like my trajectory compared to that of you know steven hyde and my indie cast co-host who you know went to college and he started immediately afterwards like writing at like in the art section of the local wisconsin newspaper and you know working his way up to the av club and you know that that was all he did and i had no no idea that sort of path existed i thought like you had to get like plucked from obscurity and then you get writing for rolling stone or whatever like i didn't know about zines i didn't know about websites i didn't know any of that shit so you know by the time i was like making some sort of name for myself as a writer it just seemed impossible to ever you know do just that and i would have these daydreams particularly at my miserable jobs uh thinking like what it would be man wouldn't it be nice if i could just be like one of those people i know and like living in silver lake just making ends meet for rent and just kind of getting out of this whole uh i don't know ladder of ambition in hollywood or law or whatever the fuck and like, what if that were okay for me? And um, by 2012, like, and I'm 32 years old, I've been writing for like nine years, been getting paid maybe for five years. 
that was the first time I had ever been granted a staff job at Pitchfork. Um, it was a contributing editor, very low on the totem pole, but nonetheless, like staff. And um, one of my one of my most um, uh, vivid memories is like negotiating for like a salary, like a monthly stipend, and like. I remember like I negotiated like a, just an incrementally larger number, just enough that would like pay my rent. Yeah. And it's like, I was so scared they'd say no or whatever. And I just remember the relief. It's like, Oh, cool. I could just do writing for now and like, see what that's like. And um, I mean, that was, that was a fun time. You know, I was taking like community college prerequisites and, but you know, I've only been like a full-time writer, like that, for like a year and a half, like 2012 to 2013 and a little bit of 14, you know, that kind of, um, I guess so, co- th- it coincided enough with like, uh, and it took us, you know, about 45 minutes to bring up the E word, but, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, like once that, like once that whole thing started taking off, like emo revival or whatever, like, my interest in that, like, I didn't, I, I guess after that point, I didn't need to be a staff writer anymore because I could just write about that stuff wherever. And believe me, it's like there no one was looking for someone to write about just that at any publication. Sure. Uh, so yeah, that's, that, that, that's kind of the things the thing, the, 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 the path I had taken, you know, like I had gotten to a point where I was able to sustain myself like barely on writing. Um, but it was still like, and I think I often do like wonder, you know, what it would have been like if I had like just gone full in on writing from like 22 years old. And, you know, maybe I'd like, maybe I'd like, you know, have books written at this time or maybe I, but I look at like, and you know, I, I, if there are any like 45 and older music writers out there who like will just completely challenge me on this, like so be it. But when I when I look at like what the future was going to be like, I, I, I don't think I, I, I did not want to be like a 50 year old guy writing about Olivia Rodrigo, like trying to like talk, try to be like besties with like, you know, people who like who love that stuff and you know like god bless people who are out doing that like if that like as long as you're being honest about it cool but there just isn't a lot of uh exit strategies for music writing you know like i i guess a lot of what my music writing career has been determined by is like i don't know fear of economic insecurity uh and so it's always been this thing that um has been I don't know, like a hobby that just so happens to pay me money every now and again. Um, and I think that's honestly like helped in some ways because nowadays, um, you know, the security I have from my job as a dietitian has allowed me to be very selective about what I write about. Um, I don't have to be desperate. I don't have to, you know, granted, I and I'm sure as a musician, this can resonate like, you know, you're not that like young, hungry, get in the van. We'll play whatever fucking gig for exposure. Um, but, you know, that's just not the way the path has taken uh, has laid out for me. If I was meant to be, you know, like uh, I, I like, I don't know, like a Grail Marcus or Lester Bangs, whatever type person, then maybe that's what would have happened. But um, 
yeah, you know, when when I when I look back on it, it's like, I, I and that's why I think it's so crazy to talk about like music writing on a podcast like this one, where it's like, it's like it, it's so it's such a huge part of like my life and my identity, but like such a small part of like my day to day. Of course, yeah. I, I I mean that makes sense. What um at this point, like what is it that makes you want to review a record? Or is it you <laughs> is it you getting pitched stuff and you're like no. or, is it, or is it like, oh this record is gonna be a talking point. I'd like to tackle it. Yeah, I think that's really it's like now I do I do miss those days where it's just like as a contributing editor, I had like a week, a monthly um uh goal i had to hit it's like we would like for you to review x amount of records so i could just be like okay well i and i could be a lot more creative about like what i was going to do and it was really cool to be exposed to a lot of different uh styles of music uh a lot of albums that i loved and also ones that i didn't think that i thought were terrible and ones that i also didn't think much about like it's really hard to write an album a review about an album that's like you don't it doesn't make you really feel very much you know Um, but nowadays it's like, it's a sense of obligation sounds like to that, that sounds like very distant and removed, but now it's like, I know that if I don't write about this, I don't know if anyone else will. Um, and so with, I guess the, I don't know, reputation, uh, that I've fostered over the years or just like maybe the, um, goodwill. I fostered it's like okay I want to help out here like it's it's so you know there, there's this undercurrent which I haven't spoken about where it's like back in the day like prior to like 2012 like if anything I was like known for like writing like a lot of like really harsh 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 fucking reviews uh-huh. <laughs> like that was the thing that I did and you know I enjoyed it it was fun and I could not get away with it now and I look back on those days with you know a good deal of regret but now it's like I think if I want to review an album, it should be something I have something to say about. Uh, but more often than not, I come from a place of ad- ad- advocacy um, where, you know, it's even like with a band like Turnstile, who certainly needs no short, who certainly has no shortage of advocates now. It was like in 2018, it's like, hey, man, like, I know this is really outside the scope of like what we might typically do, but there's something here, man. Like, and, you know, I do feel some sense of conflict about being a 41 year old guy who's like for a few places like the, uh, I don't know, the, uh, <laughs> the, the person on the scene in hardcore and whatnot, because it's like, I'm not there at the shows, like, I'm not yeah. there with the bands. But, you know, it's like, if maybe this, like, I just think of it, it's like, does this, does this band deserve a wider does it like, do I want people to talk about this? Like, do I think that this band who is doing their thing and might need like a boost? Um, and it's not like a PR way. It's more just like, this is no. something I think people should know about. Right. And I think, and I think for the ones that you've done that for, uh, people realize that, I mean, like, you know, to get a band like record setter, yeah covered you know yeah that's that's cool and that's special and that does make an impact on a band like that you know however big however small um i was kind of curious like um what 
like like between snark versus critique you know what i'm saying like what like what is this because i mean i i've been making you know top 10 uh of the year list since i since like 2002 like my friends ray and joey and i like still do it every year you know it's like it's like a thing for us and like you know we we did a few podcasts where we reviewed our we like went back and read (laughs) through our like 2008 2007 things and and i read what i wrote and i'm like god like why be so fucking rude about you know it's like oh yeah totally but i mean i because we were you know we were doing those for our friends and it was like an unchecked sort of thing um but like but now when you go into uh review something even if it's something that you don't like do you find yourself kind of pulling your punches a little bit more absolutely oh 100 percent, man like there are so few situations where um you know, I look back on stuff I wrote and think like, oh yeah, that was like totally warranted. Now, um, there, there, there's an interesting calculus to it because I mean, if it's a, you know, there, there, in, 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 in our current era, there are certain bands where you, or acts where you can do it. Like Ed Sheeran is kind of sort of like a free shot, like, you know, Justin Timberlake, man of the woods, free shot. Like there's, there are very few bands very few artists where you could kind of take that approach. But the problem with that is it feels like kind of pointless because it's like, okay, like there's no risk to it, you know, like totally. But um, I mean, and I could tell you, like I have, I can name a few artists who I've taught, who I've written terrible fucking reviews of and who I've talked to. And I'm like, Hey, like, if not really make amends, just like talk to them and just like say like, Hey dude, like this is what was going on and so forth. And I've had like really productive conversations with, like I won't, you know, reveal who they are, but it's like, you probably, you know, guess if you follow me on Twitter, like who some of these people are. Um, But now it's like, in some ways, like, I mean, I was raised in the snark era, um, you know, like 97, 98. I mean, even if like, and people would say, oh yeah, Pitchfork invented that. But like, really, like you could look at like, buddy old head. St- yeah, buddy head. Oh my God. <laughs> I yeah. remember, I remember uh, Vice magazine <laughs> yeah. when it was still just a ma- uh, magazine um, commenting on something that was connected to buddy head. And even Vice magazine was like, we can't say anything about this because we're afraid of what buddy head would do to us. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like the power that they wielded at the time. Oh God. Is, yeah. Buddy head, really uh, chunklet, well, whale hung at dawn, like all the, and I think a reason that like it was easier to do it then was because you wouldn't get as immediate of a blowback. Uh, and secondly, it's like the bands that they were reviewing at the time, you know, it's not like you were being snarky about like some band with like a thousand followers on Twitter or whatever. It was like about like, you know, the white stripes or something like that. So like the targets were bigger, but um, you know, like, but I guess like one of the more profound influences of that time was like seeing how, like, I mean, I, I read pitchfork back in like 2000 and 2001 and they would shit on like all my favorite bands yeah but, i don't know if i'll ever get over like a the bad weaker than's review oh yeah you're like that come on come, yeah come on. J- yeah jimmy like uh, I've, I've interviewed jimmy world and like uh i know that uh their drama zach is uh, still he remembers those <laughs> right uh, yeah yeah but and you know what like yeah like a lot of like the writing i had to do like i did from 2013 to 2015 or so was like 
in a way like kind revisionist of history. <laughs> revisionist history, but it's yeah. also like, yeah, like you I that stuff was like suit that stuff fucked up the scene for years. And it's like, um, but at the same time, like I remember like reading it, it's like, I don't agree with this, but I find this to be like, you know, like 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 any other 20-year-old asshole. Like I thought this was like super like rebellious, especially yeah. like at a time when like Rolling Stone was like giving every single U2 and like Mick Jagger album, like five stars. So, but, um, you know, with, with, with snark, it like, I, th- I thought there was like a little bit of that creeping back in 2021. I think that maybe, uh, you know, I think that there's cycles to all this and people maybe are just like kind of so, um, uh, tired of like uh, genuflection to power in so many ways that, they kind of missed those days. But the, the, the reason that you can't do snark is because um, you just don't like, if you're a writer, you just don't want the blowback. Like, I mean, it's, it's one thing to get like I did when I, you know, would mock like a kid Cuddy or like a childish Gambino album, like a bunch of emails from like angry people. Um, but now it's like, it's much more immediate and like stuff that can actually affect your life and livelihood. Totally. Um, so I think that, you know, understandably people don't want that kind of uh, that energy. And, you know, even when like I do my best to, you know, be critical of something, I still like wonder it's like, what's how is this going to affect my day? And you know what? Maybe if I were like 24, 25 years old uh, and didn't care as much um, that maybe wouldn't affect me but nowadays it, like uh, i it's just an energy you don't want around yourself yeah no, it I, is, I completely it, understand that yeah like i always have these nightmares of like somebody i don't know try like finding like my boss at work or whatever like and just like calling them and uh saying like hey did you know about this and you know i don't think they would care uh but at the same time it's like it's just an energy you don't really want. Like not, when someone else does that, I will applaud it. Because, but it's you know, it's just like, yeah, that's not me now. Sure. Uh, just to get a little inside baseball, just to confirm this, because I had always heard this. Is it is it actual fact that uh, if you were to, if you or whomever uh, was to write a review at Pitchfork, that it's it's not <laughs> up to the reviewer to give the number it's like does the staff vote on it how does that work okay so to the point where like it is inside baseball but i think that this uh is common it's this is like as common knowledge as inside baseball can get um so you what happens is if you're pitching an album you have to give like some concept of like what the score range is going to be like um they and it doesn't have to be on the nose, but it's like, Hey, I like this. Here's what I think I would do. This is like part of the pitch process. So no matter what, like there's not going to be a surprise where things are going to land. Like for, like for this year, for example, like I was not a huge fan of the weather station, so they're not going to assign the review to me. You know, it's like, not like, Hey, I think this deserves like a 6.5. It's like, actually, Ian, we would prefer this to be a nine. So, um, but you know, what happens is, um, and to this day, I've written there for, we're approaching 15 years and I can't say what the secret sauce is, but I say, here's the range. I turn it in. Here's what I would recommend. And 
we and they the HQ decides and that's where they land. I mean, okay. it's like in a way like the subject of much discussion and <clears throat> you know conspiracy theorizing, but it's so much more boring in uh in reality. And you know, the funny thing is like people like always try to say like, oh, there's like these this conspiracy, like, you know, they, they get real tinfoil hat with it. And it's like, if you saw how things work on the inside, like we could have bit, we could barely have kept like a message board or a fantasy baseball league together back in the day. Like you to think that there's all these like low key machinations happening. It's like, you're giving us way too much credit. The, I think the part that just probably makes people confused. It's certainly myself is like, <laughs> you'll read a review that you're like, this was extremely positive. There was yeah. like a one hint of of like maybe negative critique, but you're like, yeah. but they just gave this a six point seven. Yeah. And you're like, what? <laughs> but I, that's, that's a good score. Like, I'm oh god, like that's yeah. And yeah, you that's, know that's that's where it gets confusing. Or you're like, this read like a ten out of ten review, but yeah. they gave it like a seven point eight. Yeah, you know? boy, oh, am I familiar with that one? Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, so that, that's why I was curious. Yeah, it is, and you know, people have always said, you know what, maybe they should just like take the scores away completely and just do that. But it's like, nah, at the end of the day, people want something on there. And, you know, maybe to, um, maybe to, uh, you know, maybe like that's where Rolling Stone, I don't know, came, their star system is a lot more forgiving, you know, because yeah. So maybe that's like their genius or what has allowed them to avoid the slings and arrows for so long. Yeah, no, that, that would that would totally make sense. Yeah, the, um, the the whole thing about it's like who the fuck knows because like even a lot of times I'm like think like what because like you know even something that I would give say a six seven would be like something I'd listen to way more than anything else like most other things in that year. But it's like you know in the grand scheme of things. But here here's one of the one of the secret uh, nice things about writing about the music that i do is that most of the bands are like so um thrilled just to get mentioned that they don't care because like oh my god like especially in like the 2012 2014 days when i was like reviewing bands on like downtown records and like neon gold and so forth like i do publicists who would get such a stern fucking talking to from their bands like what do you mean you only got us a (laughs) 7.2 like that stuff is yeah, I won't name names about that. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. You hear stories. Uh, because we're now like obviously at the end of the year, this is the last episode of the year. Um, you know, everyone's doing their their year end lists and stuff oh, like that. Where do yeah. you, where do you land on year end lists? Like, do you enjoy putting? <laughs> do you put those together for yourself, or have you published one anywhere? So I've not published year? anyone this year so far. I mean, I did a uh, list for Uprox about my favorite emo albums of the year, and like post be like oh isn't that like just your top 10 in general yeah Mm -hmm. for the most part but um i haven't like i (laughs) oh in recent weeks like you know when i look on facebook memories it'll have um in the past when i've like posted on facebook like my 50 favorite records of 2017 um or you know 13 15 something like that and it's like man it was really easy for me to come up with like it like it was hard to limit it to 50 and you know this year i participated in the um you know the pitchfork voting list and it's like coming up with 50 was hard like 
I'm a not, you know, listening to as much music, new music as I used to probably. Uh, and, or, you know, and related a lot of the newer music doesn't resonate with me in the same way. It's like, uh, one of like one of the, um, you know, I guess the uh, causes of my inability to put together a year end list these days is that when I'm like, if I'm not going to review a record, it's harder for me to like listen to something twice or three times. And so, you know, in back in 2012, when I was like doing nothing but writing about music, I would like some days just get that promo pile and play NCA football 12 for four hours. And, you know, it's like, Oh, this, this is, I wouldn't have given this second thought, but now I actually kind of enjoy this, but now it's, I love year end lists. I, I like the ceremony. I like the blurbing. I like the ranking. I know that is a semi controversial opinion, but I mean, we're just people who argue about things. We like to rank things. We like to hire, put things in a hierarchy. Um, but yeah. And also I'm like just less inclined to put together a year end list because I've just, I've gotten so wimpy in my older years where it's like, if I post this and even with that list I did for Uproxx, I get like bands and like PR people and so forth, like really mad that they didn't get in there. And it's oh like, God, yeah, it's like, I, I just, ugh, I don't want that energy. It's like, I am so less willing to die on certain hills that I used to. Um, but, right. And again, it's like people forget that it's like, it's just it's what I listen to the most. I enjoy it. I know, Get off but my it's like, hey, like, dude, like we've noticed that there isn't a lot of like, uh, you know, rap or we've noticed that there isn't a lot of this or that. It's like, hey, man, like, what's up with that? And it's like, it's you know, I, I've become a lot better at like accepting that uh, there are some things maybe I should keep to myself. But at the same time, it's like, uh, I don't know, maybe it would be it would be helpful for a band if I said, hey, band so-and-so is like number eight or something like that. Like, you know, right. they could, it's in a way it's like, how do I balance the, um, you know, desire to uh, put certain bands on and advocate with like keeping my own energy intact? I don't know. It's, it's, it, when I, when I talk about 2003 to 2005, like the block spot era is being like this, just this halcyon age. It's like, it's because there just wasn't as much immediate feedback. And I know that allowed me to get away with a lot of dumb shit, but it was the, the self-consciousness that uh, comes with the territory now is just, I mean, yeah. it's, it's really suffocating, but you know what it maybe the 24 year old who is me in 2004 nowadays doesn't feel that same way. So it, you know, like music, itself music writing is a is a is a field that favors the young uh hungry and naive <laughs> there you go there you go so it's funny after all that being said uh do you have a record that you would say is your favorite record of the year? <laughs> <laughs> man I, I i love a tangent um yeah i would say that uh you know my fate like and this gets to a discussion of like do should I pick what I think is like the most monumental album or like the one that I think is like the greatest or the one I've just happened to have listened to the most. And, you know, um, I would say that like the album that I thought was like the biggest accomplishment, the one that like really made me think like, yeah, this is album of the year right here was, um, you know, your, uh, your, your, uh, label mates at epitaph. The world is a beautiful place and I'm no longer afraid to die as illusory walls. Um, love that. Like I was just, 
I mean, I love that band, and I was still just kind of shocked at how good this album is because they had just been through so much inner turmoil with like band members leaving and um uh, you know just the kind of uh yeah this like pe- like i saw it in their shows like how you know pe- like people really turned on them after that last record um it was really just like jarring but and to have them come back and like make this like circus survive or cave in sounding music and have it be fucking incredible um I just like the scope of it, the lyrical part. Like, I, I just love how they put, they can sing about like West Virginia and like these terrible parts of Connecticut, at, like in a way that isn't like safari journalism or whatever. As far <laughs> like that, or what it's called like safari journalism or like parachute journalism, like what you saw like in 2016 and 17 after Trump got elected, where you get like these like people from New York and LA flying into like, uh, some random city in like Ohio and trying to figure out what makes these people tick. Right. Um, they do so in a way that I find to be very uh, compelling um, lyrically. And I, I just, I'm so stoked that they are making, um, you know, challenging, relevant um, and excellent music. Like despite the fact that, um, or, you know, due to the fact that they're this legacy band now, which is really hard to believe. Um, but as far as like the record that I like the most, like if I if I'm going to look back, it's I'm just shocked. I'm sh- like, this is I mean, I, 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 I sometimes wonder if like I still have the capa- capacity to be surprised by music. But um, this 18 year old artist from new jersey whose parents don't even know about their music apparently is this uh artist named delete zeke it's dltzk they make digicore or hyper pop i would say it's more like digicore i don't know and i would listen to this stuff back earlier in the year and there's so much of this stuff happening like kind of soundcloud rap or whatever and i hear it it's like okay like i have no context to which to understand this if i was 16 or 17 this stuff would be the totality of my identity i know that right (laughs) but now it's like uh yeah but um they made a record called frailty it came out in november and it's it's it is that sort of like kind of a nasal kind of down tempo uh soundcloud rap but they made somehow indie rock like all the songs are five minutes and have like these big shoegaze textures and some of it sounds like saves the day Interesting. Uh, yeah, it's it's an incredible record, but and it's like this person is 18 and not like the Billie Eilish 18 where it's like this person is clearly a star like they right. have a like it's like this is like an 18 year old um, and and I don't have that vamp like sometimes like I feel like when I'm listening to like music made by 18 year olds for 18 year olds, there's like kind of this like outsider vampiric sort of feeling, but like this is like, this sounds like shit I like now, but it also sounds like the future. And I think that any year end list like publication that doesn't have this on it is like already obsolete to me. Um, but that, that, but that one, I don't know that like that one bought me like another year of like checking things out. Yeah. Yeah, It's it's a great feeling to have. Oh, that's awesome. Um, well shit, man. Uh, we're, We've uh, I, I feel like we could probably wrap this up. So yeah. let me ask you let me ask you the last question I like oh, to ask everybody, yes. which is uh 
Uh, do you remember the first time you felt like you were doing the thing that you had been working so hard towards? <laughs> oh man. Like, so the, the first time, um, yeah, I would say it took a long time to feel like, oh wow, this is like real grown up music writing as opposed to just like fun. Um, it was 2012. I had been granted the opportunity to do the oral history of the 10 year anniversary of, uh, Interpol's turn on the bright lights. This is the first time I had done an oral history. Um, and there were a couple going on at that time, like, you know, a, a big record, despite like, you know, what the recent re-review of Turn on the Bright Lights would say. Um, but, uh, and I remember just doing some legwork, some sleuthing to like none of the other interviews or whatever, were able to get Carlos D. And I don't care like what you think about Interpol or what you think about Carlos D as a, like if you don't get him to talk about the record, like it's incomplete. And, um, and I remember like, I don't remember how it happened, but it's like, yeah, okay, I'll do it. And so that whole project of just sorting through hours and hours of tape from the four guys in the band and Peter Cadis. And um, it was just like, so much work like it did definitely cost me a relationship at the time it's like uh because i got so wrapped i mean granted it was like you know i had been dating this person for like a month or so so it's not like it was a major deal but um it, it like and i remember when it ran it's like you know i had always thought of myself like yeah i can write about music this stuff's not like overly difficult for me but it's when i started interviewing people it's like like and that one in particular is like I, I would look at it, it's like holy shit I did that like they a they assigned that to me they they wanted me to do that they asked me to do that and uh, to put it together and to like try to make some like it felt almost like a book but you know answer B like the doing this podcast is the answer one B. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're too sweet. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, awesome. I appreciate it. Uh, this is fun. And also, uh, you know, I, I feel like I'd be a fool to not mention it because I go against um, any sort of uh, smart tactics on self-promotion uh, consistently with the show. But uh, you obviously wrote the wrote a, the majority of the book that yes. um, we have coming out, The the Art of Touche Amore. Yeah, so boy, so that, and that and that is a huge thing for me as well, because this is the first time like I've ever would have been something in print. So Oh, that's awesome. I'm, well, I'm, I'm fucking glad. thrilled to be a part yeah. of that. Did uh did you get did Nick send you an advanced copy of it? I have not seen that yet, nah. Oh, well, I'm going to go to his <laughs> house momentarily and tell him to send you one. Yeah, I got uh I we got the band the band at least got personal copies of it the other day. I don't know how many he got sent, but um cool. it looks great. It looks amazing. You did a awesome. wonderful job. Thank so thank you. you so much for for helping us with that. Um Cool. Well, yeah, I'll let you go. I hope you. Right, uh, thanks so much. This is uh, um, honestly, it's yeah, it's just really awesome to be a part of this world to whatever degree. And you know, like, uh, like this is the stuff that really like is the most rewarding to you know, in a weird way, like to be a writer in this community. Like, there, there's always like some sort of like friction, but like, uh, it, it, like this is where the meaning really comes from nowadays. Oh, that's awesome! Hell yeah. yeah. All right. We'll take care, Ian. All right. Thanks so much. Podcast. 
And that is our show. Thank you so much to Ian for coming on and thank you for listening. Hey, if you enjoyed this, subscribe. Subscribe on uh, Apple, Spotify, wherever you're enjoying this. And uh, if you wouldn't mind leaving a rating and review, that would mean a whole lot to me. And don't forget to hit up patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon to subscribe and get bonus episodes and uh, have the opportunity to submit questions to upcoming guests. Tons of stuff. Hit up patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. Take care and I'll see you next week. Bye bye.